0: I'm Josh. I'm Joe. And this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where for the next two weeks, we're browsing our video store shelves to choose some jolly holiday staff picks. Uh, so, uh, Josh, before we get do your pick for this week, I wanted to ask, what are your other favorite holiday movies
1: or TV specials? Well, let me start off by saying Mary Chrysler, Joe. Yeah. Um, Mary Chrysler. <laughs> Merry Chrysler. And I, I'm not a huge... These are my diehard films to watch every year. No pun intended, diehard, but I'm not like these are the films I have to watch every year, but just some that I enjoy that I jotted down are of the obvious ones like Home Alone, The Christmas Vacations. Of course, I've talked, I think we both talk about Black Christmas, Mm -hmm. the original, not the other two that came out after. I'm not trying to hate on it, but. The OG is where it's at. But one of the ones that stick out to my mind that a lot of people don't know that I always just feel puts me in the Christmas spirit, oddly enough, is a film that I watched when I was a kid from 1993 called The Nutcracker, starring Macaulay Culkin. Oh, and essentially, yeah. it's just a recording of the ballet, and it's narrated by Kevin Kline. Have you ever seen it?
0: No. I, I vaguely remember Macaulay Culkin being associated with this, but I never watched what it actually was.
1: Yeah, it was like, after Home Alone, in between sort of like his popularity, and I think a few years ago, I had totally forgotten about it, because I had it on VHS and watched it as a kid all the time, and was oddly obsessed with it, and I never could understand why, because it's not like it's this exciting, enthralling film. It's literally the performance by like, I believe it's like a Russian ballet on a giant stage, but yeah, I totally forgot about it, and then I was... Scrolling through Amazon one day and I think I just saw it on DVD and I was like, holy shit, this movie is on DVD. Like, who's buying this? I think I got it for five dollars. But yes, that's kind of a odd pick to say, but it's something that I definitely go to.
0: Was Macaulay Culkin doing ballet
1: in this? He plays uh I'm trying to remember. It's like the prince, which I, I don't even remember the the role. He does some slight dancing, but it's not really like it's not the heavy lifting of the No, 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 no. But it's definitely worth checking out. It's a very interesting film. I think a lot of people probably would think it's boring, actually. But I don't know. It's just really nostalgic for me. And then uh, got to give a big shout out to my husband really likes the movie Office Christmas Party. So that is always usually I, a go-to yeah. Christmas film that we watch every year. Nice. You've seen it? Yeah, pleasantly
0: surprised. I think I've, I've probably only seen it play on television, though, so I'm sure that's edited to some
1: extent. As far as movies go, like we don't get super into like a regimen of doing that. However, if you were gonna ask us traditionally for Christmas, instead of that we love to cruise through YouTube videos. And that's, again, <laughs> call callback earlier to the Mary Chrysler. Uh, Joe and I have talked off camera before about our love for just the ridiculousness of YouTube vines, the old vines and everything, and that's yes. one of them. But there's just other like oddity Christmas clips that I love looking up every year. The most important one that I'm sure everybody knows about, but I'm just going to reiterate in case no one does know, is the Patty LaBelle performance of this Christmas, where she's performing, I want to say, like a White House Christmas in like the early 90s. And it's just this very chaotic performance of this Christmas where somebody is delivering this really dry speech. That's an introduction to Patti LaBelle. And she ends up walking on on stage early. And then he keeps talking and she just like goes, oops, like in the background and then runs (laughs) off stage. And then he eventually announces her and she comes out and then the music starts, the band plays, and she's standing up there alone and she's got this look on her face, but she just starts singing. And in the middle of the song, she'll just stop. She didn't stop singing, but she's improving at some point because apparently the person holding up the cue cards with the lyrics on it, like had them all out of order. And so she's like, mm, I don't know the words. It's the most amazing, uncomfortable, hilarious thing you've ever seen. And I highly encourage everyone to look it up because then again, like it just gets better and better as it goes on. At some point, she just yells, where are my background singers? Because there's no one on stage with her. And then like they inevitably end up coming out towards the end of the performance. But it's just they have these shots of the audience every now and then. And everyone else is just kind of looking like. What the fuck's going on? And you can just physically see Patty just rolling her eyes and getting more and more frustrated as the performance goes on. So, Joe, what are some of your favorite holiday movies or TV specials? Uh,
0: Well, for movies, like you said, Christmas Vacation was big uh, back when I was a kid, along with the George C. Scott television version of The Christmas Carol, which actually, like, that was a serious consideration for my 10 all-time favorite movies. I love it to pieces. But then also, do you remember the 80s movie Santa Claus the Movie with Dudley Moore and John Lithgow?
1: I know. I feel like we've talked about this at one of my parties before, and I've never seen it. It was. It's one of those films
0: where I just assume, you know, growing up with it, I just assume this is a beloved uh, holiday tradition. But People hated this film when it came out. And yeah, no one remembers it. And I think it's like two and a half hours. I don't know. But I think it's great. It's crazy. It's like the origin of Santa Claus, but then it comes into modern day and they're trying to commercialize them. So there's these candy canes you eat to make you float. and I don't know. But for TV specials, I mean, my favorite, number one, even above Peanuts and Garfield, which are near and dear to my heart, is the Muppet Family Christmas, which combined The Muppets, Sesame Street, and Fraggle Rock, and it's Really difficult to find the original version. I don't even think it was released on VHS because there were copyright issues with two of the songs that they sang in it. So there was like the origin of the Muppet Babies because it showed like they were watching old 8 millimeter home movies of them as kids singing, but that got cut out because whatever song they're singing, they didn't have rights to. I'm sure they have the TV version on YouTube. I think it gets overshadowed by the Muppet Christmas Carol now, but don't miss out on this one. But also for specials, I was going to ask you, since you were a big fan of She-Ra, did you ever watch the He-Man She-Ra Christmas special?
1: I was going to bring that up. So I actually own it, and I've never watched it. I have oh, this so great good. collector's like edition of
0: it. That is legitimately great and funny that Skeletor gets stuck with these two annoying kids who force him to like Christmas.
1: <laughs> so great. Yeah, maybe we'll have to have a, a movie night, Joe, where we watch the He-Man She-Ra special. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Because I'm wondering if there's extra bonus Special features. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Two brand new documentary features. Oh, that's awesome. I have the power <laughs> music video, a montage of morals, trivia and fun facts, and then oh, the complete yeah. a Christmas special script. Jeez. Yep. So it's stacked. Uh all right.
0: Well, let's get to the main course. Who's got a beer that's So, for this episode, your staff pick was The Happiest Season. And before we get into it, I will admit, this has been the most stressed I've been for one of our episodes because there's a certain amount of discourse surrounding this movie, and I will fully admit I'm probably not the most qualified to deal with it, but we'll still delve into it. But uh, why did you choose this film?
1: Well, and I gotta ask... um... Happiest Season. This is something that were you expecting me to pick this film, or was there another one on the top of your head that you were one hundred percent convinced I was going to pick? I'm just curious.
0: Um, I don't think I had an idea of what you were going to pick. This was very surprising <laughs> just not that not for the film itself, but just it really goes outside of the realm of the time period that we usually end up with on the podcast. It's mm-hmm. usually like we're settled into like you know mid '90s to into the like mid 2000s, maybe that's our that's our bread and butter. So. Such a new film was kind of a surprise.
1: Yeah, and I'm a little bummed with this situation just because because it's so new and then the circumstances, which I'm sure you'll get into about its release, there wasn't as much special feature there there weren't basically Mm. no special features to like eat up even interviews like there was there's hardly any behind the scenes or any sort of fun facts i mean i gathered a few things but i don't know that's the only thing that i was a little bummed about because a lot of our films that we usually go over typically have kind of a plethora of things to cover just on the DVDs or special features or even, I don't know, just commentary alone. And so, and I'll, I'll fully admit too, like, if I wasn't doing this, I was sort of considering The Good Son, as the back of which I'm sure you would oh, have loved that? to watch more. because That's around Christmas? I forgot that I, a... I don't know. I just feel like sometimes when you look up Christmas films, people kind of lump in like anything that happens over winter is automatically a Christmas Oh, film. Yeah. As lo- yeah. As long as they don't specifically say, oh, it's actually Thanksgiving or right. Valentine's Day or something. Because Love, Simon came up as a Christmas movie and it's not. Oh. It just has a really fantastic... Christmas scene that I absolutely love to death. But I was mm. like, you know, that's not fair. It's not a Christmas film. It just has a scene from Christmas, just like how I mentioned with Amanda, like Steel Magnolia has like every
0: holiday. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's another one, one I didn't mention for my favorite holiday movies. There's a, a Wong Kar Wai film called 2046, which is sort of a sequel to In the Mood for Love. But that one, it only has maybe two or three scenes around Christmas, but I definitely... Feel that as uh, this is one of my favorite Christmas movies. It's definitely the whole mood and atmosphere of it.
1: Well, and also like another one that came to mind that I was getting really excited about was this movie called Dutch with Ed O'Neill and Ethan Embry. Did you ever see that?
0: No, I have not heard about this.
1: Oh boy. Ethan Embry's young. He's like a kid in it. And basically Ed O'Neill plays Al Bundy essentially and is mm-hmm. like trying to pick up Ethan Embry, who's this spoiled, privileged kid at, like, a prep school, to travel across the country to bring him back to his mother's, because he's dating his mom. Mm. And they butt heads and hijinks ensue, and it's a fantastic film, but I believe it's Thanksgiving and not Christmas Mm. that he's bringing him home for. So I was like, God. Just missed it. So next year, got to do yeah. Thanksgiving films because I would do that or I do Home for the Holidays because those are two of my favorites.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that because I was going to bring that up because I feel the Happiest Season feels more like Home for the Holidays to me than any other movie. Like it, it has that kind of holiday dramedy feel to it where it's like it's a comedy and parts of it are very funny but it also gets dark and depressing as well so
1: yeah 100 percent, and that's why i believe to circle it back like that's why i think i love this movie so much because when i watched it you know of course i watched it because of kristen stewart because mm-hmm. as I mentioned last time, like, she's a goddess in my eyes. I absolutely love Kristen Stewart. There's just some something about her that I'm just immediately drawn to. Like, she has this sort of charming sex appeal, and it's not all physically. It's just, like, she has this nonchalant way of acting that I know in the beginning a lot of people criticized her for because they were like, well, she's not really acting. She's just kind of being, like, this kind of dismissive sort of emo God, not email, but you know what I mean? Like this kind yeah, of... Yeah, just
0: mumbling her way through all of her lines. And... Yeah,
1: like she's barely expressing any sort of emotion. And I don't know, I was like immediately attracted to that and like in love with her because I feel like it was like unlike anything I'd ever seen. Because in my mind, I was like, no, this is a person who knows exactly what she's doing. And she does have depth. I mean, if you look at her filmography, like I don't think she's the same in every film. I mean, maybe similar, but especially the filmography. I mean, I just want to point out, cause I did jot down some of my favorite Kristen Stewart films, Ooh. The, my top five, if you're interested. Oh yes. So I did write twilight, new moon. I had to put on one of the twilight films and actually new moon to me was always the best story out of all of them because it was, I don't know if you've, have you seen the twilight films?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They play on TV all the time. So, okay.
1: Well, I, I always appreciated new moon because it had that really like serious sort of dark plot line of like, her the love of her life left because he's afraid mm-hmm. he's gonna hurt get her hurt so then she's super depressed and just like goes really hard on like trying on the adrenaline activities to try to feel something and is like kind of essentially dead inside and that was sort of the beginning of it where i was like oh yeah like fuck yes like this is this is what i want from this actress but then another one that's similar to that is adventureland oh, Like yeah. I always really really enjoyed that film
0: yeah, I would say that's probably my favorite of hers out of the ones that I can think of that's probably at the top.
1: Well, I mean, it checks all the boxes for a Josh film. Like, like I say constantly, say it with me, everyone. Does a lot with a little. Like there's really not much plot, but yet it's so enthralling and exciting to me. You know, like I just—it's it, like a different—it's a culture that I just missed out on because we were just too young. We were like basically born when that group of teenagers in the '80s were, you know, going through what they're going through. But I, I absolutely loved it. And then um, *The Runaways* was another one where I feel like it was the next sort of evolution of Kristen Stewart, where she was moving away from her sort of Twilight image and doing something more serious. And I even remember like reading all the behind the scenes articles about how closely she worked with Joan Jett and how like people were saying, oh, Joan Jett was like yelling at her and making her cry and all this stuff. But I didn't really feed into that. I really did feel like, of course, like Joan Jett finds this incredibly personal because it's a story of her life. So she's going to do everything she can to like work with Kristen Stewart to accurately portray her. In a biopic. And so I think she 100% nailed it. Um, And that was sort of the beginning of her queer renaissance as well. Because up till that point, like, she was dating Robert Pattinson. But I think The Runaways was the first film where there was, like, queer content. Mm. And it was, like, no fucking big deal to her. And so, of course, Happiest Season's on there. And then the one that really stuck out to me is this movie called Personal Shopper. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you saw it, but again, yes. there's not a lot going on in that film. It's essentially, she's a twin, her brother died, she's just looking for a sign that he, like, what is it? Like, that he came back as a ghost, essentially? Yeah, it's, it's a very minimal ghost story,
0: so, yeah.
1: And, I, and yet it was so effective, and, like, even just the costuming and just, again, her sort of carefree, I don't give a fuck attitude of it, it just like I said, is incredibly charming and, I don't know, I'm, like, envious of her. Like, I almost look at her as, like, if I was female, I would want to be her because she is sort of, like, toes the line between androgyny and femininity, in my opinion. Mm. I don't know how you feel. Yeah. And I've always thought that was, like, very sexy quality for a person. So, kind of circling back to Happiest Season, you know, when I was thinking about Christmas films... I was trying to stay away from horror and I was trying to find something nostalgic, but ultimately I, I just kept going back to this because I think I mentioned in the previous episode that it really does just feel like it checks all the boxes for a great Christmas film. And then I've been wanting to do a queer film for a long time. Also just us cover like a film that was specifically queer, not just like with queer actors or characters. And yeah, like this has some of my favorite characters In a film ever. I mean, I'm not going to say the best characters ever. I'm just saying some of my favorite writing and performances and sort of bits in a film. And the fact that it's sort of wrapped in this bow of Christmas and feels like it's basically a film that anyone could watch. I mean, I comfortably watch this with my parents. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you can't watch a queer film with your parents. But, like, I don't know. I just... It wasn't even a topic of conversation, you know what I mean? It just feels like it's so effortlessly just a love story and you forget that it's about, you know, focusing on two women. And then, you know, there were other just minor bonuses in picking this is, you know, like if you really dig deep into like the holidays, like a big theme around the queer experience is, you know, like some people do end up coming out around the holidays and so it can either be a traumatic experience or a joyous one and you know there's this big theme of you know your chosen family versus your actual family and so i don't know i just i felt like this all just kind of again ticked off a lot of layers in picking a film for christmas so and and mostly also i i love clea deval i don't know what your thoughts are on her but
0: it's funny like i i only really know clea deval from can't Hardly Wait in The Faculty, where she's kind of that alternative girl in both of those. So I know she's kind of become like a queer icon at this point, right? Yep. And yeah, I was completely oblivious to that until this movie came out. It was like, oh, it's that Can't Hardly Wait person is now well, directing.
1: And, but I'm a cheerleader. Did you ever see that? She was oh, in Oh, that. that's right. That's right. Uh, she was in Veep. I don't know if you ever watched that, but her character mm. is pretty hilarious in Veep because she plays the daughter of Julia Louise Dreyfus's character's wife. Um, and she's just pretty much just playing herself, like very dry. And it's mm. she talk about a character who's pretty similar in basically all, all <laughs> of the performances. I feel like she is someone who is more like that, which is ironic because we'll get into it, but. Essentially I was reading an article where Kristen Stewart full on just admitted that she was just performing as Clea Deval in this film <laughs> because it's autobiographical.
0: Well, that was gonna this is one of my questions about this movie for you, because I don't know if you came across anything more definitive. Cause yeah, Clea Deval has said that this is autobiographical, and I've been told that it was pretty common knowledge that she was queer beforehand, but her Wikipedia page says that she didn't come out until 2016. So between that and she does a lot of defending of Mackenzie Davis's character, mm-hmm. that makes me wonder, like, well, what parts are autobiographical? Is she relating to Kristen Stewart or Mackenzie Davis or both, it could be? But I couldn't find anything that was her specifically saying, which I would understand if she wouldn't, you know, be specific that way. Because I saw this movie when it first came out, so, like, rewatching this... And thinking about it more, I guess, how the film treats Mackenzie Davis's character, Abby, right? Or Mm -hmm.
1: Harper? Uh, Harper. Harper Harper is Mackenzie Davis. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah. Like, the way, I don't know, the storyline of Harper would maybe make a little more sense in my head if... Part of that was autobiographical, but I don't know.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I did actually do my research and I have an article from IndieWire that was called Happiest Season How Clea Duvall Made the Queer Holiday Rom-Com the World Needs Right Now. Mm. And so she has a quote that says, um, it's not so much like my specific coming out story per se. I did come out to my mom in a very dramatic way on Christmas Day and I've spent the majority of my Christmases with other people's families I've definitely gone home with people and been the friend. And I've had Mm. people come places with me and they were the friend. It's really like a mosaic of all the different experiences of at least for me being a gay person. Mm. And so I think that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? It's not like... The story is exactly her story. Like, she went home with this, you know, closeted person who forced her to be in the closet, and then they eventually came out, and it was a happy ending. And, you know, of, of course, they're jazzing it up a little bit more to make it more mainstream and friendly. But you're right. There are more articles about her defense of Harper and sort of what transpires. And we can get into it later if you want. We don't have to talk about it right now. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean... I really appreciate, because this isn't her first film either. I didn't realize that. I I went into this thinking this was her first film, but apparently she did do another film called The Intervention. And she's really good friends with Natasha Lyonne, which makes sense because they starred in but I'm a cheerleader. But I've also listened to podcasts and other interviews with her, stating that they were friends even before they did that movie, which made that experience awkward, because oh. they play lovers in that film. But they're really good friends. But yeah, going back to sort of her sexuality, I think it was, from what I gather in interviews again, I believe she said that she was always out to her friends, but mm. not publicly out. And I think it eventually became more of a thing where she you know, was more vocal about it or people were were having that conversation. But I don't think it was ever a situation where people were speculating whether she was or not, because I don't also think like she probably wasn't in the spotlight where people cared to know. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But uh, one of the inspirations that I had to write down and note that I loved for this was when writing this film, both her and the writing partner, Modeled it after films like Groundhog's Day, When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, but the the one again I'm, I'm pointing out because this is a callback again to our very first episode is Love Potion Number Nine. Not that we covered it, <laughs> but just a shout out. Like again, I always feel like Joe, the universe is here telling us things, and eventually we'll probably have some connection to the in crowd. I can only imagine. Oh yeah. Uh, somehow.
0: So yeah. Well, we can dive into information on the film. This film came out November 25th, 2020 on Hulu. But then I also noticed that it made $2.1 million at the box office and was confused because it turns out it was released in theaters in Australia, Hong Kong, Mexico, and New Zealand. Um... For the cast and crew, I mean, we've talked about half the people already, but we have Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis in the two main roles of Abby and Harper. Along with that, the reason I first saw this film, Dan Levy, because I feel this was released right at the height of that pandemic era where everyone discovered Schitt's Creek. Mm-hmm. So then it's like, oh, I like Dan Levy. I'll I'll watch this film. But then also you have Alison Brie and Aubrey Plaza. You have Victor Garber, who will forever be the dad from alias alias yeah uh an openly
1: gay actor i don't know if you knew that oh yeah
0: yeah that's right and mary steenburgen and also anna guestar for the crew like you mentioned clea deval wrote this with mary holland who plays jane and the director of photography is john glissarian who he has a lot of experience with romance films because he shot about time love simon and he's all that the redo of she's all that and then also very
1: good in my opinion oh is it I oh. liked it. I mean, it's cheesy, but it's fun. Uh, and then I think
0: you're going to get into it more as we talk about the summary, but the soundtrack is full of queer pop, like Tegan and Sarah and Sia. Shay Diamond? I didn't know that one.
1: Yeah. Well, I was going to say uh, earlier, I'm glad that you brought that up because I was going to say, I mean, this is another example of like inclusion in the film, like Cleo Duvall is going out of her way, not out of her way, but she's she's making sure to incorporate queer artists In this film where, I don't know, say what you will about Mackenzie Davis, you know, a straight woman playing gay, like, I mean, I feel like this makes up for a lot of that, you know, and if people have issues with it. (laughs) And uh,
0: the hot topic of the criticism. So our pal, uh, Leonard Maltin, did not review this film, uh, unfortunately. Probably long
1: after his time.
0: Yeah, but... Basically, I mean, it has an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it had a 73% audience score. Those are all very vague and meaningless to me. Uh, but it also won a Glad Media Award for Outstanding Film-Wide Release. But not everyone was a fan of this film. I found this. It's on AfterEllen.com. Uh, it was, Lesbians Aren't Too Happy with the Happiest Season. Oh, no. I, And I'll just read this chunk here. It says, The buzz around this film was insane, as lesbians and bi women around the world shared in their excitement. Understandably so, because it's definitely time we have a lesbian holiday film. It was a chance to normalize lesbian relationships and shift the focus off of stereotypes and instead enjoy a sweet, wholesome, home-for-the-holidays film, right? Unfortunately, that's not how the happiest season played out, and lesbians were not having it. The focus of the film quickly became about Harper being in the closet and the confusing tension that causes for Abby. Yet another coming out story. Harper does not ever come out on her own either. She's outed by her sister Sloane during a holiday party. Thus, this particular scene and The Ones to Come are incredibly triggering to many lesbians and bisexual women in the community, as it mirrors their own personal experiences. And then there was an interview done with Clea Duvall on Glamour... Uh, Or no, it's an article on Glamour, but it says that Duvall recently told Elle, in response to the controversy, I think the debate is less about the film and more about your philosophy on forgiveness and growth. It was incredibly important to Duvall that Harper get the chance to work through her trauma. I think as long as you're processing and dealing with things in an open, honest way and making the conscious choice to work through them, then the road to a happy, healthy relationship is bumpy and you work through stuff and that's what makes it stronger, she continued. You don't go through a hard couple of days after a long period of time, meet a stranger and cut and run, even if that person is Aubrey Plaza. Uh first point I want to say that Leah, you gotta watch more rom coms because you can absolutely cut and run with someone like Aubrey Plaza. But I do see where she's coming from, and I think Like, I get the sense more that, I mean, it can be triggering to people, like, coming into this, and I think it does seem like it was overhyped as this, like, fun Christmas lesbian film, but it was more of this, you know, like Home for the Holidays, that it is more of a dramedy, I guess.
1: Yeah, uh, you're unpacking, unpacking things.
0: Yeah, so I think, yeah, people went in expecting one thing, and it was a different thing, and that's where a lot of the criticism comes from, so.
1: And I will add, like, I read articles as well about that ending. It seems like that's the hot, high point of like conflict for a lot of people is that ending where sort of Abby has had it and goes her separate way, which again, we'll get into, and Harper sort of left hanging. I did read an article where someone had said, perhaps we just needed more time in yes. between, and then it would have went down a little bit smoother for people rather than like, okay, I forgive you repeatedly. Because we, we have a lot of moments where it's like, I'm a bitch. I'm sorry. Okay, I forgive yeah. you. I'm a bitch. I'm sorry. I okay, I forgive you. Like it it's very quick. Yeah,
0: some of that criticism would have maybe quelled a little bit if it wasn't just like the big denial and then Kristen Stewart runs away and then it's one little monologue given by Dan Levy, and then she comes back, and then everything. It's like, oh, okay, we'll do this again. I was like, I feel like there needs to be more there to understand Harper's side a little more. But we can get into it more as we talk about it.
1: Yeah, well, let's jump into the summary. So, the film opens with a holiday-themed title sequence, cluing us into how our two leads, Abby, played by goddess Kristen Stewart and Harper, Mackenzie Davis, met, fell in love, and inevitably moved in together. Banger Candy Cane Lane by Sia takes us out of the animated style opening and sets the scene where we officially meet Abby and Harper on a walking tour of their own Candy Cane Lane. And Harper is in full Christmas mode while Abby is a little standoffish, kind of just being the bah humbug of this situation, but also sort of just saying like, I'm just not into Christmas like you are. Again, this is that Kristen Stewart coolness that we absolutely (laughs) love. But also, like, Kristen Stewart as Cleo Ball. So it's fantastic. Determined to get Abby and the Christmas spirit, Harper drags her away from their tour. The two sit atop one of the brightly lit houses and view Candy Cane Lane in its entirety. And I'm going to point out, Joe, like, the movie had me at this moment because I'll just say to all the people listening out there, I wrote a script, like a queer script, years ago, I guess. Joe, you probably did read it, right? I think Hearts on Fire. Oh, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this movie had me right away because I actually had a real lived-in experience with my first boyfriend like this where he had coaxed me up to the top of a very high rooftop and scared the shit out of me just to show me the view of the entirety of skyline of Minneapolis and it was beautiful and we were drunk and I was terrified that we we're going to fall to our doom because it was very high up and we would have severely been hurt. And so this is why this film had me right away. Cause I was just like, Oh my God, I captured this in the film. And I mean, in my script and while my version will never, ever probably ever be made or seen, Thank God. This this was the exact same feel and vibe for it, and that's why I was like, this is near and dear to my heart. Like This feels like this is the queer female version of what I was attempting to write. So yes, sitting up top uh, the roof, looking at the candy cane lane, Abby reveals that she's not a Christmas person and typically spends the holidays alone taking care of other people's pets while they're away with their families. And Harper laments that she's going to really miss her when she leaves to spend time with her family. And the two kind of share this meet-cute moment where they stare at each other and are abruptly interrupted by the owner of the house. They're squatting on the roof of. And in a panic, Abby and Harper kind of split. And Harper, you know, kind of goes to safety and goes back the way they came. But somehow Abby ends up falling over the edge of the house, which this is kind of a hilarious scene because she's like, wait, Abby, where are you? And she's just, then you see her dangling over the edge, holding (laughs) on to like this gutter, which... I'm going to fully admit the first time I watched it, I was like, holy shit. Like, because again, she's pretty high up. I'm like, this is funny, but it's also pretty terrifying and I feel terrible for her. But thankfully, Abby falls safely on one of those inflatable snowmen below. As they run away, they kind of kiss in an alley. And in a euphoric high, Harper invites Abby to spend Christmas with her and her family in the hopes that it will convince her once and for all to love Christmas. And Abby accepts. So the next morning, Harper wakes up to Jingle Bells playing on a record player and she finds the more upbeat Abby in the kitchen, and Abby tells her that she woke up so excited about going home with her, and the reluctant Harper sort of apologizes and tries sort of indirectly talking her out of it, saying it wasn't a big deal, but Abby reinforces her decision to go. Later, Abby meets with friend John, Dan Levy, still in his David Rose mode. John has agreed to take care of all the pets while Abby's away, and... While Abby's talking to him about all the things that he needs to do while she's away, he tells her that he left a gentleman back at his apartment, and he's tracking his movement to make sure that that gentleman leaves. So confirming that the man then had left his apartment, John snaps back into reality and tells Abby that he's responsible for dozens of authors and that watching a few pets will be no problem. So the two eventually end up in a ring shop, where we learn that Abby plans to propose to Harper. And, I mean, right off the bat, like, just these subtle little actions... Just have me uproariously laughing. But like, they get to the ring shop and he's like, What are we doing here? And then the woman comes out and she's like, Here you go. And they open the ring box and John, aka David Rose, Dan Levy, looks at it and goes, No. <laughs> like, he, that's all he says. And it's just hilarious, like right off the bat. And so, you know, we cut to them walking down the street and he's vehemently disagreeing about this proposal. And the sanctity of marriage, basically giving her a bunch of shit and being like, why would you want to join the patriarchy of marriage? And why do you feel like you need to try to own this woman? And she basically just fends him off by saying... Harper is her person, and she wants to let the world know, which is very sweet, and it warms his heart even. And she also admits she's going to wait till New Year's to ask her, but decided to ask Harper's dad for permission and propose over Christmas, and she's going to be with them anyway. So Jolly Old St. Nicholas plays as Abby and Harper are now making their way to Harper's family. And on the way, Harper comes clean that she hasn't actually come out to her family, mostly because her dad announced he's going to run for office. So Abby immediately pushes back and asks why did you invite me? Which is a legitimate question because that's what everyone's thinking. Like, bitch, why did you ask her to go if you knew yeah. that you weren't out? That's um, that's like kind of step one of like, harbor. you're not the best person sometimes. Like, yeah, really. exactly. And I mean, this is another one of those things that like, I just, this whole scene, like Kristen Stewart, in my opinion, just eats it up because she's just so like effortlessly believable of like, why did you and in- ask me to do this and harper reveals she was just having such a great night she really actually legitimately wanted abby to come with her but then follows that up by saying that her family thinks that the two of them are just roommates and the reason she's coming is because her parents are quote-unquote no longer with us uh but harper begs abby to come with and tells her that if she does this it will prove how amazing she is when she find when uh, harper actually does come out to her parents and so Abby reluctantly agrees because she's a fool in love. So they arrive and are greeted by Tarpers mother, Tipper Mary Stenberg. Um, and there's this great iPad gag. Like I don't know Joe if you have family members like this, but I definitely have had that experience where there's like the iPad or like the phone where it's like you're doing family-related things and everything has to be documented and captioned for social media. Like I just. I do love this gag because my mother-in-law is a scrapbooker. You know, she does like to try to capture these moments so she can have them in a scrapbook and sort of tell a story. And so that's all I kept thinking about every time Tipper would be like, oh, that's such a great moment. Wait, freeze, because all the girls are, like, hugging the dad. And it's, like, inauthentic. You know what I mean? Like, it's an authentic moment that they then have to freeze and capture just to prove to everyone, like, look at how amazing this moment is. Like, how cute. So along with Tipper, we meet, okay, this by far is my favorite character in the film Jane. Like, I had no idea until we were actually doing the research for this movie that Mary Holland was the writer slash friend mm. of Clea Duvall. Like, I just thought this was just a kooky actress that, you know, nailed her her delivery of Jane. Now because we're going to have a lot of Jane references from here on out. Joe, what are your initial thoughts? Did she drive you nuts or did you oh, really no. think she's hilarious?
0: I love Jane. Yeah, with Jane and uh, John are probably my two favorite characters that they're both these side characters just doing goofy shit the whole movie.
1: Yeah, and it's I feel like Jane has a great delivery method in just these little quirks that it's like a blink and you'll miss it sort of laugh out loud moment and so i'll point a lot of these out and i apologize in advance because i do really really love all these moments with jane so here we are with tipper and Sister jane who right off the bat she scares the living shit out of harper because she comes up from behind her and she's just like (laughs) and scares her for no good reason and then shares a long embrace and condolences with abby which is so funny because she knows that she's a quote-unquote orphan and she's like you're so brave you don't have to be <laughs> and they're like jane that's enough but the two then meaning uh, harper and abby get a quick tour meeting harper's father ted victor garba who abby attempts to bond with but is immediately cut off by tipper who resumes the house tour and then the girls stop at sloan harper's other sister's room that's allison Bree, who we'll meet later and see that it's filled with trophies and Harper rolls her, her eyes sort of setting up this dynamic, which I also incredibly appreciate about, about this film. That sort of sister rivalry that they have throughout mm-hmm. of it, because it's like very undercut. And they they go on to explain that Sloan and her husband started their own law firm, but then gave it up to sell gift baskets, which again comes out sort of later as a, as a gag. And then we get a stop at Harper's old room, which is decorated in pictures of sexy guys and a Josh Hartnett faculty shout out with Glenda oh, Ball. Because I, I didn't, didn't even put that together. I didn't either until I was looking at the trivia and someone posted there like, yeah, that's Josh Hartnett was in the film with her. So shout out. And of course, Jane's like, ooh, is it hot in here? Or is it just him? <laughs> <laughs> um, and we also see a framed picture of Harper with her ex-boyfriend, Connor, which Tipper Giddily points out. And so Tipper then asks Abby if she has a boyfriend, which leads to an uncomfortable lie, which Harper interrupts by stating that they're Ready to get settled in. And Tipper tells Abby that she'll show her to her room. And she re- reinforces, because basically at this point, Harper's like, Hey, mom, I thought Abby was staying in here with me. And she's like, Harper, I would never ask two grown women to share a bed. And it's just pretty fantastic. And anyone that is in a queer relationship will 100% identify with this if they're, you know, like closeted and going home with their parents and put in uncomfortable positions. It's like, yeah, okay. So the excitable Jane then brings Abby down to the basement and explains that she'll be staying in her old room. And Tipper tells Jane to then go home and get some rest <laughs> before apologizing to Abby for all the extra storage and mess that she has in that bedroom. Tipper also reveals that there's no lock on the door because Jane was afraid they would lock her <laughs> in. Like, I just... Again, these little subtle jokes that are just ridiculous. But later that night the family and Abby go to this fancy restaurant for dinner and Tipper tells the host that they'll need another chair as Connor, Harper's ex-boyfriend, arrives. And again, I don't want to take away from this the plot, but like this is one hundred percent like these little jokes that I love. Like The visual of, like, we need one more chair, and then they bring one over, and Kristen Stewart, everyone sits down, and she's, like, practically sitting on the ground with her head peeking over the table, and everyone's like, are you okay? And she's like, no, this is fine, this is perfect. Just little, little tiny things like that I feel like are so smart. Uh, Abby's introduced to Connor as an orphan and ends up, oh, like I said, with the extra chair. Over drinks, Jane enthusiastically shares details on her Game of Thrones-esque style novel that she's been working on, which Harper does say, like, at some point, like, oh, it's just, it's been 10 years. I can't believe you're still working on that novel. And she says, well, it takes a long time to create a world. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Uh, Tipper interrupts, With an intimate story of how Harper gave Connor chickenpox and spent a weekend alone together in a cabin with him, having sort of this ooh moment, which Harper awkwardly interrupts and asks Abby to join her in the bathroom, where she immediately profusely apologizes to her. And Abby tells her that she can be herself around her, not to worry, she's pretty laid back about the whole situation, and then Harper replies, no more surprises, I promise. But immediately as they leave the bathroom, they run into another ex, the character Riley, played by Aubrey, Aubrey Plaza. And I have to say, like, she's probably my second favorite character. I don't know how you feel about her. She is
0: pretty great in this, because I feel she is definitely someone who has developed a specific style of acting. Mm-hmm. This kind of, you know, the sassy, sarcastic, that Parks and Recreation character. I feel that follows her through a lot of movies, but this feels different. And that was really refreshing that she's more down to earth, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Like she has a little bit more personality. Cause I was going to make that comment and say like, she's come a long way since Sparks and rec that dry sort of Daria esque type yeah. personality here. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're actually kind of rooting for her, which we'll get to, but <laughs> it's just a quick runoff where she runs into her and she goes their separate way. Uh, so the girls, Abby and Harper, go back to the table, Tipper and Ted ask Harper if they saw Riley. And then there's this sort of minor slight on her sexuality before the conversation shifts to Abby. So we kind of get this hint that yes, Harper's family may not be as cool about it as you would think because the dad says something about like, oh, that lifestyle. So the conversation shifts to Abby and what she's doing currently professionally. And she initially ends up bonding with Ted about her art degree or something like that. And then later we cut back to the girls having a quick check-in before bed back at the family home. And they admit that today hadn't been the best Harper apologizes again, telling Abby that it will get better after the two share a quick kiss. And then uh, Abby calls John to check on the animals, and this is some of my favorite dialogue as well. So Abby reveals what has transpired over the last few hours to John, to which he replies, so her parents think their straight daughter brought home their lesbian friend for Christmas? Which Abby replies, well, they also think I'm straight. And he goes, have they ever met a lesbian? (laughs) Like, it's just... (laughs) Oh, it's so great. I'm not doing it justice. Then she replies, just saying, Well, it's kind of fun, like having a secret. And he's like, Yeah, there's nothing more erotic than concealing your authentic self. Like it just this dialogue is so witty and great. Cause she calls him and he's like in the middle of a, a puzzle that's missing one piece and he's holding oh, a wine right. glass. And he's like, I'm I'm really in the middle of something. And she's like, I'm just calling to check on the animals. And he's like, Yep, the cats and the dogs have been fed and everyone's great. She's like, What about the fish? And he's like, Mm-hmm. He had totally forgot about it. So, okay, cut to the next morning, Abby waking up to twins Matilda and Magnus, creepily staring at her, and Sloane calls for the kids, apologizing before she exits. I don't even know if she apologizes. I think she just says, I'm Sloane, by the way, and walks out of the room. So she's pretty frosty right from the jump. And in the kitchen, Sloane and Harper then are shooting digs at each other while Abby and the kids uncomfortably listen. And I do appreciate that Abby's like, wow, that's pretty intense between you and your sister. And she's like, what do you mean? She doesn't even notice. So then we meet Eric, Sloan's husband, and the rest of the family ends up joining everyone in the kitchen. Ted reveals that the family has to make a good impression for the donor tonight at the holiday party, while Tipper reminds everyone that they have to take the family photo picture for Instagram before the party. And then she immediately says, so don't wear anything that will strobe, Jane. <laughs> pointing at her. Uh, the family head to the skating rink, and then this is another fantastic gag, in my opinion. That is 100% my husband, because... As Joe may have heard, first to the listeners, I'm turning 40 this year and I'm trying to relive my youth by renting out a roller rink. And my husband does not know how to roller skate. And so I 100% imagine this is going to be him. Because while everyone is ice skating in the film, Abby is seen pushing this small reindeer walker that's like intended for children. And they have those, you know, at the skating, the roller skating rinks too, like walkers so you don't fall. And so I just will forever always see this scene as my husband because I, I just think it's so hilarious. Because like, we've seen all these things before and we know how mortifying that is for like a grown adult. But um, Harper and Sloan are continuing to exchange digs at each other and eventually challenge each other to a race. Abby watches in horror as the two girls aggressively race, knocking other people over and inevitably fighting. And then later that night, the family assembles for the holiday picture and Tipper asks Abby to take the picture for them. And then immediately follows up by saying, Jane, get out of the middle. (laughs) So Abby takes a few of the pictures, but Tipper is pretty passive and deflated and rejects all the pictures saying boring, blurry, not good. Okay, I guess we'll have to take more later. So the family finally arrive at the country club for the holiday party. Ted introduces everyone to Carolyn, who I'm not quite sure who this is, if it's like a campaign manager. They never really say, but she's the one that introduces him to the donor. So Carolyn McCoy takes Ted away to meet the white whale, the donor, along with Tipper and Harper and a frosty Sloan announces she's taking the kids to the kids' room before asking Eric for multiple drinks, and Abby is left alone with Jane, to which Jane explains that she is single and ready to mingle. And while she's saying that, Abby eyes Riley across the room, who gives her a quick acknowledgement nod. And again, this is like a pretty cute moment between the two that you're like now starting to kind of pick up like, oh, okay, something's up over there, right? She's not just a minor character. Uh, there are a few cutaways. There's one of Ted... Tipper and Harper meeting with the donor, who's revealed to be Anna Gossire, who doubles down on the idea of endorsing a perfect family with zero secrets. There's Sloane jealously watching this interaction going on across the room, because it's sort of established throughout now that Sloane is jealous of Harper because obviously she's like daddy's daughter and the one that is being pulled into these conversations. Then there's Abby getting hit on at the bar, saying, I'm not really looking to meet anyone, which Jane immediately jumps in and says, I am. And then there's a brief interaction between Abby and a standoff of Sh- Sloan. Oh, and a great scene of Jane trying to find this man on the dance floor. Like someone walks by and she just starts kind of like moving closer and closer to him. And then he's like, no, no, no. So later, Harper meets back up with Abby. They're interrupted by two of Harper's old high school friends. Connor appears and steals all the air out of the room and Harper away for a private conversation, while Harper's two friends basically announce in front of Abby that Connor's still into her. Thankfully, Abby is saved by a call from John, who admits that he has been tracking her. Abby then is surprised by Riley, who approaches her outside and tells her that she wasn't eavesdropping but can relate to her situation. And Abby plays dumb and the two go their separate way. Uh, Inside the country club, Ted announces his run for city council. Abby and Harper secretly brush hands and steal glances. And this is another cute moment because, again, as a queer person, you can kind of identify. You, like, do what you can in a social situation to, like, show your affection but may not feel 100% comfortable, like, expressing yourself. So I do, I do really like this. But as they do this, Sloan kind of looks over and notices Abby like longingly staring at Harper. So that sort of plants that seed. So back home, Abby's brushing her teeth. She gets a text from Harper asking her what she's doing. She sends Harper a picture of her with her toothbrush, to which Harper replies with a sexy pic, prompting Abby to sneak through the house towards Abby's room. Mm. She's nearly caught by Tipper, hides away in a utility closet. And she texts Harper and accidentally activates this Roomba, which causes a whole clusterfuck in the closet. And Tipper finds, eventually finds Abby in there and asks, what are you doing in the closet? Wah, wah. It's like one of those on-the-nose jokes It's like, oh boy. But Abby ends up just telling her, oh, um, I'm sleepwalking, and shamefully heads back downstairs. To which she's shocked by a Harper who surprises her down there, barricades the door, and inevitably jumps her bones. So the next morning, the two girls wake up in bed together and they're startled by Tipper, who needs to get inside to find Jane's old Game Boy, which I do appreciate that because they have the actual old school Game Boy that she pulls out for the twins. Um, Harper hides behind the door while Ted appears to tell him that he invited the donor over for Christmas Eve party and the two are almost caught. It's kind of like a throwaway scene, like they're fine. Later, Tipper and Sloan fight off Jane from decorating Christmas cookies. So mean, they're so mean to her. Well, Abby learns that the family has a tradition of exchanging white elephant gifts, and so Harper apologizes that she never told her and reveals that she can't help her shop because she's got to help her dad out. So a- Abby ends up tagging along with Sloane and the kids, and they go to the mall, where Sloane asks Abby if she can watch the twins while she shops for a gift from Santa, because apparently Santa promised the twins the complete works of sylvia plath is that what it was <laughs> um and abby agrees and tries her best at conversing with them i do i do appreciate that because there's that scene too even when they're decorating cookies and abby's just in the kitchen the twins are staring at her and she just like waves at them and is like hi and they just keep staring at her like so creepy And then here, like, they're being super weird, too. She tries conversing, and I believe while she's shopping, the twins secretly plan a piece of jewelry in her bag, which sets off alarms when they try to leave. Abby's assaulted by mall security, with, again, a throwaway scene from some bit actors that I've seen in, like, Veep and other shows. So Abby shamefully returns back to Harper's family, who's convinced that she's a klepto now, and was told it would be better if she didn't go to the dinner with family tonight. So this is, again... Probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I don't know if I've said that multiple times, so I apologize if everyone's like, the whole movie is your favorite part of the movie. But Abby ends up eating dinner alone at the restaurant and then runs into Riley. And this whole exchange with them is just fantastic. They go to this drag bar for drink. It's Well, I take it back. I want to say it's called the Oxford Inn or something like that. And I was reading, again, a trivia note. So there's a drag performance happening at a bar, but apparently whatever the name of the bar is... Maybe the Knollwood? I don't know. It's based on an actual lesbian bar that was in LA that closed. It was like one of the oldest lesbian bars that was like the last one to close recently. So I appreciate that little level of detail. But they go to the bar and there's a drag performance and they discuss Harper Riley reveals that she was best and this is probably the most one of the most heartbreaking moments of the film right where she finally reveals that Riley reveals she was best friends with Harper became more than friends with her and then they dated in secret they used to leave each other love letters until someone found one and Harper blamed it on Riley telling everyone that she was in love with her hiding the real truth. And that immediately is, like, I think one of those things that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. They're like... Yeah, another Tucker. point that, like,
0: Harper kind of sucks. Is a
1: piece of shit, yeah. yeah. There's a quick Christmas sing-along in the bar that leads to sort of a me cute moment between the girls until Harper texts Abby. And so Abby then meets up with a very drunk Harper. So, like, following that scene into this one, I think it makes it look her look even worse.
0: Yeah, and just, like, Christian Stewart's chemistry with Aubrey Plaza is fantastic, And I think they might not have anticipated that when casting this movie, but I think that's what really got people disappointed in the end when you would see these two together and that, you know, but we'll get to that.
1: Well, because then when Abby's going to this next scene, like Harper is wasted at this sports bar with her high school friends and Connor, and they're essentially just talking and leaving her out. And so she decides to leave. And then that's sort of the most off-putting moment where this is like the biggest change in Harper all of a sudden because instead of her being pretty on board and being like, oh, I'll go with you, she just looks at her and is like, oh, ah. I really wanted to stay. And she's like, well, just stay, have a good time. And that's when you, I think, again, you make the switch and shift from like, oh, she's being an asshole. Like she should go home with her partner. That's the right thing to do. But yeah, so she's staying a little bit longer. We get a shot of Abby who, again, even more so we're establishing is reading over a few texts she said, sent to Harper, but they haven't been replied. And then we get a shot of Harper and Connor reconnecting. So Abby checks on Harper in the morning, and this, immediately, she's, like, treated like absolute shit, and I don't know if we're just supposed to believe that she's hungover, and, like, Mm. that's why she's being such a bitch, but, like, Harper's essentially saying, like, oh, I just need some space from you, which I would be pissed, too. I was just like, what the fuck? Like, you dragged me here under false pretenses, and now... Yeah, like I think at one point Harper even says like, I don't appreciate you checking in on me. And she's like, it's just like, I'm not checking in on you. I'm just making sure everything's okay. Like, fuck you. So Abby storms off. She checks a rideshare app to get the hell out of there, but it's over like $1,000 to get back home. So she calls John, explains everything that's happened since they spoke last. She tells him this is why she avoids Christmas, because it brings out the worst in everything. And then Abby then calls Riley and the two meet up to shop for a white elephant gift. And later we get an establishing shot that Harper spots the two of them and is immediately suspicious. So later, the passive Harper grills Abby about what she did that day as the Christmas Eve party begins. Abby ends up hanging out with Riley and is surprised by a visit from John, who tells her that he's been tracking her. <laughs> and then he immediately poses as terribly as her ex-boyfriend. I think, like, I think it's Tipper, right? That's like, you must be the ex-boyfriend. And he's like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he tells Abby he's there basically to rescue her. So Abby spots Harper flirting with Connor and then is finally over it. Because at this point, she's like actively doing it, I feel like, to be a bitch. Because she thinks there's something going on between Abby and Riley. So Abby rushes over to her pretty emotionally. And this is, again, one of those great cues from Kristen Stewart. Like, she's pretty good at selling like her disappointment and anger, and tells her that it's over and starts packing her things. And this is where Harper apologizes and explains her actions, which leads to the first of a loving embrace. She immediately somehow forgives her and decides to go back. And then the two are caught by Sloane because they kiss. They embrace. Sloane walks in. They're caught, which freaks Harper out. And as Sloan heads back to the party to tell the family what she just saw, Harper tries persuading her to hold off. But then in return, ends up catching Sloan's husband making out with Carolyn in a nearby closet. And it's revealed that Sloan and Eric are separating. That nobody was supposed to know yet. So Harper makes a crack basically being like i guess i'm not the only one with a with a secret which causes Sloane to tackle her and this is another moment that i absolutely loved cuz like she just the frostiness between these two and then that look Allison Bree gives her before just immediately just diving on top of her and screaming it's so fantastic so the two girls are chasing each other throughout the house and they end up back in front of the guests Sloane outs Harper and Abby Harper panics and awkwardly denies it causing Abby to leave. And I have to say, like, this was an incredibly uncomfortable scene, too, like, when she's outed, and she's like, no, I'm not. She's lying. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's cringy. It's really, really cringy. But I suppose it captures it probably pretty accurate for people that are unfortunately outed before their time.
0: Yeah, I know, like, there's criticism of this and how it goes, but also, like, yes, I'm sure that similar situations happen all the time with
1: people, So it's. You know, not making up this experience. Exactly. So after Harper panics and awkwardly denies it, Abby leaves super disappointed and then in one of the saddest moments of the film actually harper is pissed and grabs this giant canvas of main street that jane painted and cracks it over sloan's head to which the genuine because you know up to this point like jane's been pretty like goofy but this is the only time we get like a genuine teary jane who explains that she worked really long on that painting and then immediately breaks that tension by tackling her two sisters because she just wants to be basically seen and part of the action. But yeah, that was a moment that I was like, oh my god, I feel really bad for her. Yeah, it's kind of introduced as kind of a joke where there's all these smaller
0: presents, and then there's this giant wrapped picture frame. But yeah, when they open it, it's like, oh, this is actually a really nicely done painting. And yeah. But,
1: okay, so this is probably my... Okay, I've said this before, but this is probably my all-time favorite (laughs) gag of the entire film. I'm dead serious. John finds Abby outside and hands her a fur coat and (laughs) you're just like, what the fuck? Because it's clearly like not theirs. They each have a fur coat that they put on. And I just, I love it. And I wish if, if I could wish anything in the film, if they could rewrite anything, that they would actually end up leaving and take the coats with them. But they end up going back inside and they, they don't have them anymore. But I just love this idea of, like, John basically being like, fuck you. And then, like, stealing some rich person's, like, fur coats and then just leaving, like, never to be seen again. Uh, but this is the uh, big sort of emotional speech that we were mentioning off the top of where Abby explains that she stopped celebrating Christmas after her parents died. And John consoles her and reminds her that everyone's coming out story is different, but the thing that they all have in common is how terrifying that experience is. And just like Joe had said earlier, there was a quote from Clea deval that basically said, I know that I've done a lot of things in my road to self-acceptance and to coming out that I'm not proud of and had to go back to people and make apologies. And I've had people come back and make apologies to me based on their behavior. We all have to be really gentle with each other, other, and John's speech was my way of showing compassion to everyone who might be on either side of that situation. So, I don't know, do you have anything to add about this particular moment, Joe?
0: I mean, this definitely seems to be the moment the film has built up to, like, capturing kind of what it was trying to convey. Like you were saying with Clea saying that, like, how to treat people with kindness, because you don't know their whole story. And I feel like keeping this in mind softens Harper and the ending, I feel. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, yeah, I I feel like, yeah, I have conflicting emotions about how I feel about some parts of this film, because it goes back and forth on if you want to view it through this lens, and then you do You know, I can have empathy for Harper, regardless of her being such an asshole throughout chunks of this movie but then you can also argue well i mean there's definitely a structure of how a movie goes and how it points and you really pointed this movie to end in a different way so it's kind of like yeah i don't know it it's kind of like moment by moment thinking about it like what i like and what i might have preferred if anything
1: so exactly it's complicated it gets confusing and maybe it's a little too realistic in a way where, you know what I mean? Like there are these, the internalized homophobia of people sure. like then kind of, I don't know, all these terrible things that they do are coming out and being displayed and it's like more of their issue than other people. So I don't know.
0: Yeah. And I know, like, I remember reading like some of the Twitter quotes that people had of their issues. And one was they felt really uncomfortable with the film because of the way that Harper, you know, when confronted and put on the spot in a public way, how she kind of denied uh, her sexuality. They're like, oh, they had done something like that as well, and that they didn't like how the movie brought those feelings back. And I was like, well, that's more on you than the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe that is something that is worth exploring more with yourself. But, you
1: know. Exactly. The only way to get through it is to face it head on. So, yeah. Well, going back to the film, Abby and John do return back inside. Harper comes Out to her family and explains why she hid it from them. Sloane cuts the silence by revealing that she's getting a divorce. And Jane follows that up by saying she doesn't have any secrets, but is an ally. (laughs) Trying to soften the blow. And Abby tells Harper that it's too late and decides to leave anyway. And this is the moment that I was fully convinced, like, oh, it's over. Because, like, yeah, how can you come back from that? But... Then we cut to the scene where Harper attempts to win Abby back one last time by telling her that she will never hurt her like this again and begs for one last chance. In kind of a blink and it's over moment, the two reconcile and everyone spends Christmas morning together. Ted reveals that he sunk his entire savings into his campaign, and that's why winning meant so much to him, and that's why he was so emotional the night before when Harper came out. It had nothing to do with her. Jane tells him that she can take care of everyone once she sells her book. <laughs> Uh, and then there's a quick montage of the family unwrapping gifts, Sloan and Eric exchanging a civil nod, Abby and Harper being affectionate, and Tipper attempts one last family photo, allowing Jane to be in the middle, and she asks Abby to pose with Harper in the family picture. So we cut to one year later, Jane is intensely reading from her published book, which John is now managing. The whole family's there supporting her. We get a quick shot of Abby's engagement ring on Harper's finger, Later, everyone meets up at the theater for a screening of It's a Wonderful Life, The lights fade and our leads romantically share a look before the credits roll to Make You Mine this season by Tegan and Sarah. And as the credits roll, I do appreciate when they do things like this to get people to stick through the credits. We do get a few glimpses of those Tipper Instagram photos. It's just sort of a scroll, but there's a picture of Jane holding a copy of her book, a Thanksgiving family photo, a photo of Ted winning the mayoral race, an engagement announcement of Harper and Abby... Tipper doing karate because it was revealed earlier that that was her secret. She always wished she could do Krav Maga, I think is what she says. <laughs> the family's first gay pride, which apparently I didn't notice, but if you go back and look at it, um, Clea Devall is in there, in the, right. in the picture with her arm around Aubrey Plaza. And then a birthday party for the twins. There's a selfie of Tipper and Ted. And then the last one is Harper and Abby and the family in a Christmas photo. So the
0: end. I will, like, just one small moment, going back to when kind of everyone is back together and hanging out Christmas morning. I do love when Jane is talking to John on the couch and explaining her book, and
1: he instantly gets everything. (laughs) Yes. He knows right off the bat. And I actually... The only special features that were on the DVD, because of course I own the Blu-ray, I mean, do you expect any less, right? Well, it's Uh, nice that they released it. Well, that's That's what I was surprised. Again, it's like, holy shit, Like if this is out, like I better buy it now, because this is not something that's going to be around forever. So there were three deleted scenes that I didn't find really added or subtracted much to it. It just was kind of like addition to scenes that we had already seen the first was uh more between john and abby in that cafe as she's telling him about the animals and basically there's like a server that comes by and he's wearing like a backwards hat and john's like what did i tell you about this this is really triggering as a queer person that you're forcing your masculinity on me and it's like and then he, this guy apologizes and turns it around and walks away and he's like he wants me or something like that Second was a country at the country club while Abby's getting hit on at the bar. There's more between that guy at the bar. Uh, The last one is Jane at her book reading slash signing. It's just this throwaway of an eccentric fan coming up and pulling his shirt up and being like, I love this story so much. I got the entire map of your world tattooed on my chest. It goes all the way down. Do you want to see? And she's like, no. And at the same time, because John's sitting next to him, he's like, yes. (laughs) So that's kind of it the only other thing is like a blooper reel which is cute but it doesn't add anything but again like it's just really refreshing to see like kristen stewart's actual personality coming through mm. so final thoughts joe well how does this film
0: hold up for you i don't know when you last saw it well i guess is this a is this a yearly
1: christmas watch since it came out i feel like it will be Because I'm always in the mood, I could watch this during the summer, too. Like, this is just a film to me that doesn't feel too long, that goes down real smooth. There's no parts that I'm ever watching that I'm like, ugh, this is the part that I feel like drags on. I feel like it transitions very smoothly and quickly. I think the part that I could see it not being an easy
0: yearly rewatch for people is that it does dip into drama more so than maybe some other movies. Again, going back to Home for the Holidays, because I know like there were a lot of negative views of that film, but I still love that. Oh, um, it's it's so good. I don't watch it every Thanksgiving, but that's probably just because I don't own it, and
1: I definitely would. Well, you can come over, because I,
0: I do. <laughs> you know
1: I own almost
0: every single old movie. Or uh, now. And and again, like it, I think it comes down to how frustrated you get with Harper's character. It's very easy to dismiss... Harper's like, oh, what a piece of shit. It's like, why isn't Abby ending up with Aubrey Plaza? Which I feel is a big piece of the discourse. Like, they, obviously it was being set up. Why, you know, it was perfectly fine for them to get together. Why didn't they? There's definitely a, a basic structure for rom-coms and holiday rom-coms that it does seem to follow and then doesn't follow. So I can see people being just strange. Like, like, like you said, where how they kind of, just in the blink of an eye, they've gotten back together like and everything's fine that's yeah. where i feel like i think we
1: needed a little bit more time
0: there <laughs> but um
1: yeah i agree and i i will say now officially on the record because we're now through everything like i 100 mm-hmm. agree like every time i watch this i'm like she should be with riley like mm-hmm. harper is a really grating character i understand she's going through a journey but also like more on the fact of john's point of like sometimes certain people are in a different place than you are just because you came out and everything was great doesn't mean that they're there yet. And I will say like, I agree with that, but I also think in reality, then that inevitably sometimes unfortunately leads to a breakup because it's like, well, I appreciate that. I love you. I have love for you, but we're not on the same level. I want to be with someone that's with like she, Abby even says that at some point, I just don't think I can be with someone who's not there yet. And I have a hard time believing that all of a sudden Harper's like, boom, I'm there. Like, I'm out now. Like, she's like the adolescent, you know? Like, she had just came out. Like, she's going through her teen years now. Abby did all that shit. She's on a different level.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's where, like, it definitely seems you're at different points in your journey. But, yeah, it's like, I think there's going to still be some issues... (laughs) <laughs> yeah. With this the day after and onward toward that. So, yeah.
1: I don't know. If this were reality, I feel like it would just be Abby saying, look, I love you. I'm happy for you, but we're on different paths and like we can still be friends. But I also believe that maybe Harper would have a lot of trauma still, you know, triggers Mm -hmm. and her own triggers and trauma. Like, I think it would be, you know, I deal with that on a daily basis. Like even last week, like I go to this exercise class that's kind of out in the suburb outside of Minneapolis. And there's a woman in my swim class that always asks me if my wife has a membership. (sighs) And I, it's, you know, I'm so far past that moment of like being ashamed or anything, but it's just awkward talking to a complete stranger that you don't really know to have to have that conversation. Like, to be frank, I just, I'm I'm so, like, dismissive about it because I'm like, I don't want to get to know you, no offense. Like, I just, it's just not that deep to me to, like, have a conversation to correct you and, like, tell you. Now, any other person would be like, well, you need to do that so they learn. But, like, I just don't care enough about this person to worry about it. But I 100% can believe that if I were, like, a Harper, I would be sort of triggered and have this trauma of, like, oh, yeah, my husband does this, my husband does that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, again, like, if we're thinking of this long term with these characters, I could 100% see Abby being like, what the fuck? Like, your husband, like, what? We're going back there again? Yeah. And them fighting because they're, again, they're not on that same level. So it's a movie, I'm getting way too deep, but... Well,
0: I will say, though, there is a long history in cinema of straight rom-coms where one person clearly ends up with the wrong person at the end so welcome to the club lesbians now you have one (laughs) of your own that you can be upset about who someone ends up with
1: uh and joe i think you may have come up with a new challenge idea a film (laughs) where the main protagonist ends up with the wrong person like clearly (laughs) would not be with that person at the end yeah you're gonna have me thinking long and hard now about some of those (laughs) options so any last thoughts joe
0: Oh, I think we covered him. There's a lot lot to unpack with this movie, but hopefully we did an okay job, and I don't have egg on my face talking stupidly about queer relationships.
1: (laughs) No, I don't think... Not at all. And I honestly... I apologize again for telling everyone that this is my favorite. No, this is my favorite. No, this is my favorite, because it's all my favorite. Uh, All right, well, moving on. Next week, everyone, we're continuing our holiday extravaganza with a pick from Joe. So, Joe... For our film next week, did you pick a naughty or a nice film?
0: Ooh, well, considering the reviews I looked up for this, it might be a little naughty. But I will say first, I was pretty tempted to choose Let It Snow as another new Christmas film because you had said that you hadn't seen it. No, uh, I haven't. It's, it's like kind of, it was released on Netflix. It's kind of like a teenage love actually, like multiple storylines going on. But I feel, how can we not go with Trapped in Paradise?
1: Oh my god, yes, finally! (laughs) We've talked about
0: it enough. It comes up randomly all the time. The Nicolas Cage, John Lovitz, Dana Carvey film from the early 90s that, again, much like Santa Claus the movie... You know, I grew up with it. I'm convinced everyone grew up with this film. This is a Christmas classic. That is not the case. Uh, I I'm not sure I've ever ran into someone before who's known what I've talked I've been talking about this movie. <laughs> but it's so like the trailer especially is so ingrained in my mind. I'm like, yeah, this is a very memorable piece of '90s cinema. But
1: yes, finally, yes, I'm I'm excited, and I do love Nicolas Cage. So yeah. I. I feel like this is maybe peak Nicolas Cage, too, in the 90s, like when he was doing his good run, right? Or was, this this was This was pre-Con Air,
0: so I feel this was, bef- like, people liked Nick like Cage, right but he before. hadn't blown up, I don't think. And so, yeah, now that we've tackled the discourse of problematic lesbian relationships, we can now tackle the discourse of Nicolas Cage and his acting ability, so...
1: Yeah, well, I'm excited, I was going to say, because I I hate to make it into like a Nick Cage appreciation episode next week, but definitely going to have to talk about some of our favorites. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait until next week. So uh, if you guys like what you heard in this week's episode, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify or Google. You can also reach us at VideoDropboxPodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, remember to be kind and please rewind.